This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And today I am delighted to have with me a wonderful and great friend, Cantor Howard Stahl. Cantor Stahl has served as a cantor at Temple B'nai Jeshurun in Short Hills, New Jersey, since 1999. And before that, he served at Temple Israel in Lawrence, New York, and before that at Congregation Beth Emeth in Albany. He has served as the president of the American College of Cantors, he served on the board of the Union of American Hebrew Congregations and is now on the faculty of Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. That is the college where rabbis and cantors are trained and ordained. Um, Howard, it's such a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, Mark. It's a great pleasure to be with you. I wish I could see you in person, but I feel your presence deeply, even though you're New York and I'm in New Jersey. I'd like to jump in, if that's okay with you, and Talk about one of my favorite passages. I mean, we could go on for about three days talking about this passage, but I'll try to be concise. And this is actually Parashat Shemini, which is begins with the, the ninth chapter of the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus 9, for those listening. Leviticus 9. Yeah, Leviticus 9, which we read uh, in synagogue a few weeks ago. And there's so many layers in this portion that I'd just like to set the stage a little bit before I talk about really the two main uh, parts of the portion that I find very fascinating and multi-layered. This is really the ordination of Aaron as high priest and his sons as the priestly dynasty. It's been over a year since they've left Egypt, and and Aaron and Moses go into the tent uh, with his sons and spend seven days preparing for this ceremony. The Mishkan is complete, and on, on the eighth day, which is why the portion is named Parashat Shemini, Aaron emerges from the tent. And what we have here is the really the first example of a dual leadership model. And that is Moses and Aaron. They had worked together, Moses being the primary leader and Aaron taking a backseat role, except when it came to being his spokesperson. But now we have a dual leadership model and a distinction between prophet and priest. Moses being the prophet, Aaron being the priest. Correct, correct. And what is the difference between a prophet and a priest? And how do we see that manifest even today? The prophet, which is Moses in this instance, lives and acts in the moment. And that is a unique moment and is situational. So we see that not only in Moses, but we see it in all the future prophetic leadership down the line. And we see it today in community organization and some of the roles that clergy take today. The priest, however, and this is Aaron as the first Kohen, the first priest, lives and acts in eternity and follows unchanging rules. And the priest's role is not to react to the situation in the moment, but to preserve, maintain, and sustain. Very interesting. So, um, Howard, what is the difference in today's world between the priest and the prophet? Because obviously we don't have either terminology in Jewish leadership. So how does that distinction sustain today? I think the lines have blurred 
clearly, because if you look at rabbinic roles or cantorial roles, they, 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 they blend into each other. So there's the sacerdotal role of, of performing rituals and rites and life cycles and ceremonies. These are bar mitzvahs, weddings, funerals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baby namings. That would be a, a canon rabbi performing in his role in, as, in the priestly function. Okay. Yes, that's what, what we call the Aaronic influence, as from Aaron. And then you have speaking out for social justice and, and, and community organization and calling people to task to behave in a moral and ethical manner. And that's the, the mosaic or the prophetic role. Where would you put in there if someone comes to you as a canner for marriage counseling? It is, again, blurred because it would have to do with advice, giving advice. So that was, that was clearly more of a, of a ritual role. Rabbis and cantors of old certainly did, given, did not give advice on marriage counseling. Uh, so these are all relatively new roles, and to determine what 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 Torah, what Talmud, what commentaries say about how to live one's life, ritually, ethically, and morally. So th- those th- those lines have blurred since Moses and Aaron a little bit. Okay. So that that is, that is the stage setting. We have a leadership paradigm being established here. And the eighth day was set as a celebration, which how the portion opens. Now we have some interesting things that, that, that uh, happen. So in, in the second verse, Moses says to Aaron, take a calf of the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering without blemish, bring them to the Lord. So, you know, Aaron listens to that very carefully and he, he internalizes it. And then Moses says something else in verse seven. Moses says to Aaron, come forward to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering, make an expiation for yourself and for the people and sacrifice the people's offering and make expiation as the Lord commanded. So the commentators said, why does Moses say to Aaron, come near? Right. Why, why come near? Why draw near to us? And it's because Aaron is embarrassed. Aaron feels a tinge of remorse a tinge of insecurity. Is this because of the sin of the golden calf? Well, look at the wording here. Look at the wording here in verse three. It says, it says to them, speak to take a calf. Mm. So do you think Moses starts with taking a calf? He later tells him to take a goat and to take whatever, but a calf without blemish. So this is, every word in the Torah is chosen carefully. So yes, it, what is it called to mind? It calls to mind the golden calf. And Aaron is feeling what we call today the imposter syndrome. Right. He says, wait a minute, you're asking me to be a leader? Look what I did. I'm not adequate. I'm not, I can't do this. And very often, as I teach young rabbis and cantors, and even after ordination, as I mentor them, I'll get phone calls saying, I, I feel embarrassed. I, I mean, I feel like an imposter. I don't know anything, even though they've had four years of undergraduate work and five years in seminary, they still feel that they can't do this. This is a very common thing. But Aaron has things to draw on this. So what happened? Aaron was in charge. Aaron was the leader when Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And what happened? He facilitated the golden calf. And now he's feeling, how can he stand before God and the people before after this failing. Because this was the greatest sin, not only that happened, but the greatest sin imaginable. And it was committed under his watch. He was leading it, even in, even albeit inadvertently, he was leading it. He didn't stop it. He's here and he's saying, 
how can you give me this responsibility given what I did or at least enabled? And, and Moses is telling him what? And Moses is saying to him that even though the calf that you have to bring to sacrifice brings up bad memories, and even though the horns on the altar are reminding you of the golden calf, you are perhaps more worthy than anyone else I know. Why? Because it says that Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded that you do, that the presence of the Lord may be, be fear, may appear before you. It was for this, as Jonathan Sachs says so eloquently, it was for this that you were chosen. So the high priest is the one who pleads for forgiveness on behalf of the entire people. So are you saying that Aaron's sin perhaps paradoxically made him more qualified to serve in the role. And the fact that he wasn't, nobody is, but the fact that he wasn't perfect, in fact, that he's far from perfect. If he was better, he would have been less qualified. But the fact that he committed this sin made him more qualified for this priestly function that he was about to perform. Exactly. He knows what sin feels like. He knows better than any else. What did he hit? This egregious sin that he committed with the golden calf. And therefore, as the forgiver, he can forgive because he himself knows what it takes to ask for forgiveness. As Sachs says brilliantly, your biggest weakness will be your greatest strength. So Moses is telling him in modern terms, the reason why you feel like an imposter is actually the reason why you're the most qualified guy I could possibly have. Exactly, exactly. So even though the horns on the altar and the cast might embarrass you, it's a wake-up sign that you are perhaps more qualified than any other human being to be able to ask for expiation from your people. When they come to you and ask for forgiveness from sin, you can grant it to them because you know what it's like to sin. Okay, so Aaron assumes his role on the altar. Then what happens? So then Aaron blesses the people and begins to perform his priestly duties. And the blessing, we don't know what his words were. We assume it was the priestly blessing the threefold blessing, which appears later in the book of Numbers. Then we go to chapter, uh, chapter 10, uh, where we see something very interesting. So it says in verse 1 and 2, Now Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, he had two other sons, Itamar and Eleazar, each took his fire pan, put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and they offered before the Lord alien fire, which he had not enjoined upon them, and fire came forth from the Lord and consumed them. Thus they died at the instance of the Lord. So this, this uh, strange fire, Avodazarah, which today literally implies strange kind of worship, weird kind of things, uh, bizarre kind of worship. And they die. They're consumed by the fire. So what does all of this mean? What does this mean? Why, why did they die? Because they put strange fire? And I think you have to parse out further what was going on with them. So we could say, were they arrogant? Were they impetuous? Some people have even said they were drunk, that they were you know, suffering from uh, alcohol uh, abuse. And, and, and the evidence for them being drunk is that in a subsequent passage, uh, alcohol is forbidden from the altar. Yes, right. So that, that's, that's probably the influence from there. But I, I think it's more than that. I think it's a little deeper than that. And if you look at the Hebrew word, okay, so uh, it says he took each his fire pain, ish machtato. So, you know, you can play with that word, machtato, and um, you could say it relates to the word chatar, to undermine, or 
tachat, uh, to, to go underneath and sub-rosa to do things that they shouldn't do and to, to engage in subterfuge. So what, what was the undermining? What was the subterfuge? So perhaps this was an end run around Moses and Aaron to assert their own future leadership position. And I think, I think it was Rashi who said, students should not render religious decisions in the presence of their teachers. So this was more than wild enthusiasm in the heat of the moment. This was a violation of the priestly role that we had just talked about, that they're not supposed to react to the moment. They're not supposed to be involved in the moment. They're supposed to preserve, sustain, and maintain. And what did they do? They took it on their own. Ish machato. They took their own, each his own thing. Each one did his own thing and therefore subverted the role of the priesthood. And, and they did it against what God had specifically commanded. And I think it's interesting, too, that one of the only other things we learned about Nadav and Abihu is in Numbers 3-4, where we learn that both of them, each of them, had no children. Right, right. And, and obviously, everyone in Judaism is commanded to be fruitful and multiply. So the fact that both of them had no children implies to me that they had each made a choice not to have children. Right. Exactly, exactly. And, and the thing is, this is not just enthusiasm. Uh, this is a lack of judgment and a lack of fidelity to the code of the kahuna, the code of the priesthood. They essentially uh, went around Moses and Aaron and perhaps said, you know, you guys are too old. You guys are the past. We want to change things. We want to create the future. And we're going to do this our way. And we're going to be zealous in this. And you see the result of that. Would you also perhaps read it as they had started or joined some kind of a religious extremist cult? Because the way I read it is they each decide not to have children. They bring this strange fire that had not been commanded. All these things combined suggest, as you said, not just enthusiasm, but I think it's something of a an extremism. In other words, they bring a strange fire. They decide not to have kids. They are going, they are not in the community by any means, it's almost like these are the first religious extremists. Mm-hmm. And, and then the fire comes before them. So God doesn't send the fire to kill them. But, you know, it's almost like religion is a fire. It can warm you. It can inspire you. Or if you become an extremist, it can burn you. And in this case, kill you. They, they were consumed by the fire in their bellies, as it were that they had an, a, a zealousness that consumed them. So the, mor- the, the, the moral and ethical lesson here is that judgment and fidelity to law is something that the priesthood must follow. And if you don't, this is the result. Right. Now, there's plenty of room for innovation. You've been one of the leaders in the reform movement for 40 plus years. There's plenty of room for innovation from the priesthood. But it seems to me like they went way beyond the realms of acceptable innovation towards extremism. And I think it's just fascinating and incredible that the Torah, right in the, this is really close to the middle of the Torah, the Torah in the middle of the Torah is basically forbidding religious extremism. And I think we see this in two or three passages subsequently when we we deal with the blasphemer. And the blasphemer is put to death, but not by the people. The people go to God and ask God what to do with the blasphemer. They're not religious extremists. They don't put him to death themselves. They ask God, and only when God says specifically what the punishment is, does the guy get the death penalty. 
Well, a- any deviation from the norm is always met with skepticism. Look at the gen- look at the the genesis of the Hasidic movement with the Baal Shem Tov. Mm-hmm. The Baal Shem Tov in the 18th century started as an itinerant herb salesman. He would go around from village to village uh, selling amulets, doing exorcisms, healing the sick. And as the Hasidic movement developed during his lifetime and after, you know, it was the Vilna Gaon who excommunicated everybody and said, this can't be. These, right. these are weird, strange people. And then, of course, it was the rise of the Haskalah and the Maskilim that fused the two of them together and ended that dispute. So anything, and, and of course, they were all nervous about, you know, the false messiahs, Shabtai Tzvi. So it's very complicated. Anyone who deviates from the standard is going to be subject to criticism. But but this was an extreme case. I want to move on because the, the next verse is really, to me, uh, perhaps the most fascinating. Hmm. And it says this, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord meant when he said, Through those near to me I show myself holy and gain glory before all the people. And now the most famous two words by Yedom Aharon. And Aaron was silent. Mm -hmm. So Aaron has just lost two sons. His credibility is strained. He has finally gained confidence to be a leader. And now this is all in the mind. Why is he silent? Why isn't he wailing or crying when his two sons are consumed by this avodah, Zarah, the strange uh, fire? He must feel a sense of deep loss. It is gut-wrenching to watch your children die. And, and yet he's silent by Dom Aharon. So again, the Torah is very, very dependable to use words with intention. So let's look at the word Vayidom. The root of the word comes from the same root as one of the plagues. Hmm. And I'm, I'm sure you, Mark, of all people know, Dom, blood, right. as someone who's uh, written an incredibly wonderful book, which we look forward to seeing someday soon. And that's the first plague. It is the first plague. So what does this have to do with blood? You know, why Why is the same root there? It also comes from the this same This is the word root. for silent and the word for blood share the same root? They do. They do. And also the word for earth, Adama, the first person, Adam, Dam, same thing. Also the color red is Adom. So what is blood, silence, and earth have to do with anything. Why, why didn't they use a different verb? Why did they use this verb? Great question. So I believe it, it grounds Aaron. Aaron realizes he's just been consecrated as the high priest. He's wearing robes. He has the ceremony. He's got responsibilities. He's blessing the people. He's performing priestly duties. And now he realizes he's flesh and blood. He's a human being. So he cannot assume this high office with haughtiness. He has to be grounded just like you're grounded in the earth. And why the word red? Well, he was humiliated. He was embarrassed. He was embarrassed by the behavior of his sons. And so, you know, when you're humiliated or embarrassed, you turn red, right? You're blush or you, you're, the blood rushes to your face. So he, he was humiliated. And then you see this word again when Joshua blows his shofar and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down and the sun stands still. It's the exact same root as dom, as yidom. And we see it again in prior to this in Exodus 15 in the Song of the Sea, which says, and it stood, it, it stood still as a stone. So the same root of stillness, 
of humiliation, of paralysis. Aaron was paralyzed by the fact that, oh my God, what happened to my sons? They self-consumed and they embarrassed us and they did not fulfill the mission of the priesthood. So he is paralyzed with grief. And so he cannot even utter a word. He's embarrassed. Is he paralyzed with grief or embarrassment or both? I think both. I think it's 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 recondite kind of fears and, and, and emotions that he can't quite express it in screaming and he can't quite express it in, in, in any verbal fashion. And and then there's another um another example of this word of of Yudama or dumb, and that occurs in, in First Kings and about Elijah. And it talks about a cold demama daka. And 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 it's from First uh, Kings nineteen and says Then he said, go out talking to Elijah. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold it, uh, sorry, and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice called the mama daka, dama same voice. God was in the small voice. And so God very much was part of Aaron at that point. And Aaron felt a closeness to the earth and a closeness to God. And that's where Aaron becomes consecrated truly, not necessarily in the tent of meeting, but through this kind of transformational experience, he was connected to the silence, that still small voice of God. Now, do you think Moses made a mistake when Moses immediately following, as you said, his two, Aaron's two sons die in front of him, the most horrifying thing that a parent can imagine. Then Moses immediately rushes in with an explanation. And he said, of this did Hashem speak, and then he tries to explain it. His explanation is very interesting, but it's for another day. Moses tries to explain it, and Aaron was silent. Now, you, in your 40-plus years of being a cantor, must have done, well, you have done countless funerals and shivas. What do we learn here about how to treat somebody who's mourning. That it's a heavy burden. That it's incredibly... And if you look at verse 3, the word ekaved, okay? And it's... Which is translated here, and I will... I will... I, I became glory before all the people. Kavod. You know the word kavod. But it also means heaviness. And gain glory before all the people. Also, again, a sense of burden or heaviness, a sense of weight, the yoke that is upon leaders of all kinds, that they feel this burden of leadership. So I, I think, you know, counseling someone who's lost a child is perhaps the hardest thing one can do, but uh, it is a burden of parenthood to be able to nurture children through the ups and downs of their life, uh, and God willing, uh, they survive and thrive, but unfortunately some don't, and some uh, survive but go through trials and tribulations and it is the burden that we carry. Now, I also know that the Jewish um, practice of when you attend a shiva, you're not supposed to say anything until the mourner speaks first. And I believe that derives from the experience of Aaron and Moses in this passage. It, it might very well. I, I don't know that for a fact, but sometimes silence is more profound than words. Sometimes that still small voice speaks louder than the noise. I mean, don't forget the commandments were ushered in with sounds of a shofar and thunder and lightning and the but sometimes, as we see in Elijah, 
God wasn't revealed in the wind or in the earthquake or in the floods or the waters. God was revealed in silence. Right. So there's holiness in silence. There's holiness in silence. And and do you think that it's that holiness in silence that we should try to draw down when someone close to us is mourning, that, that we should be silent and in our silence, we're supporting them rather than in our words? Because the words didn't seem to work for Aaron, even when they came from his brother Moses, the greatest man ever to live. Yeah, and in these days where we're socially isolating, I mean, it's very difficult, but under normal circumstances, sometimes a nod or a look or a touch is more profound and more healing and more comforting than some profound statement that you might make, such as, I know what you're going through. No, you don't know what you're going through. I'm sorry. Every, every, every loss is unique. And sometimes just a shake of the head or a comforting hand on someone's shoulder offers more comfort than any, any possible profound words you might think of. Very interesting and characteristically profound. Uh, so Howard, thank you for such an illuminating discussion of uh, Leviticus 9 and the beginning of 10. We have one, one last question I'd like to ask you, and I really can't wait to hear what, what you say. So um, Andre, in Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir, he tells the story of running into somebody with whom he served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And he said to this man, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned that everyone is much less happy than they seem, and there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> so in your now more than four decades of being a canner at several synagogues, a leader among the Reformed clergy, just a counselor, a teacher, a singer, serving every function in the Reform rabbinate, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? I think that's a it's a pretty tough task to, to do to distill down into two things, but I would say this: number one, the past often challenges us more than the future. I think that we we basically are are subject to who we were and what we've done, and that in many ways influences who we are and how we act. And so people are more frightened and more concerned about their past than they are the future. I think the human spirit is resilient and can face the future uh, perhaps more courageously than they face the past. But very interesting. So, so uh, what do you mean by fearing the past? I think we're all the products of, of, of where we came from, both nature and nurture. And as Freud said, we are who we were. Hmm. So we carry the baggage of how we were raised, how we grew up, what life experiences we had, and that colors how we react to the world, to the present, uh, so it's often more a burden than the future would be. So that 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 would be one. And and the second is, I would say that I've learned it's a basic human need to be hungry. So what does that mean? So some people hunger. Their hunger is motivated by jealousy or greed. You know, I have to have this possession. I have to have this position. I have to I have to attain this uh, recognition. But the other hunger motivates us to feed the body, to feed the mind, and feed the soul. So the hunger for knowledge, the hunger for relationship, the hunger for connection, and the hunger for love. Uh, and that's the kind of hunger that I've tried to nurture in people I, I deal with, uh, congregants and, and friends and family, 
that uh, always be hungry to learn, always be hungry to feed your mind and your feed your body and feed your soul. Less so the body, more so the mind and, and more so the soul. I think that's beautiful. I think that's that really explains the beginning of uh, in the beginning of uh, the Magid section of the Haggadah when it says, "All who are hungry come and eat. All who are needy come and celebrate Passover." This is, of course, that there's a this is in the in the uh, my forthcoming book on the Haggadah. But I think it's exactly what you said: is that um, it's the hungry self and the needy self that's being invited to the Pesach Seder to the great Jewish New Year celebration. Exactly. And if we're not hungry to learn and we're not hungry to love then we're going to be rooted in the past. So we can overcome our past. I don't want you to think we can't, but hopefully that hunger will will be the enabling tool to do so. Well, Howard, thank you for such a fascinating conversation and for your dear friendship of more than 10 years now. Mark, it's my pleasure. It's always a joy and a delight to talk with you and God willing, we'll enjoy uh, some time together in person uh, sooner than later. You are the-